Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you want to learn more about the topics covered in this podcast, we have two event series. The first is called Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The other conference is called the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at theaicon.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Evangelos Samudis, co-founder of Synapse Partners. He recently published a book entitled The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. And I wanted to get his thoughts on the transportation industry and the role of big data and analytics in its future. Evangelos became interested in the automotive industry long before the current wave of autonomous vehicle startups were in their planning stages. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Evangelist Simudis, welcome back to the O'Reilly Data Show. Happy to be here, always. And, you know, we're doing this interview as you've just released a new book called The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. So uh, this second conversation will focus on uh, this new interest of yours in uh, self-driving cars and uh, transportation particularly the intersection with big data and AI. Um, and before we jump in, you know, it's it's tempting to say, let's just uh, talk about self-driving cars and data and AI, but I think it'll be good uh, to provide our listeners a short kind of context in terms of the automotive industry, right? So what are some of the key, fa- what are some of the key facts that someone who wants to enter this field? So someone who has the skills in big data or data science wants to enter the field of of self-driving cars and the automotive industry, what what should they know about this industry? So first of all, I should say that I I came to this um, as I was trying to understand the impact that startups can have on disrupting the automotive industry. Uh, Because as you know, for... For a few years now, I have been uh, studying uh, start what I call startup-driven innovation. So, in other words, what can corporations learn from startups as they as they try to innovate, particularly as they try to identify new market opportunities and new uh, models, business models. And um, the more I started spending time in the automotive industry the more I came to realize that uh, both because of the autonomous uh, autonomous vehicle technology, but also because of uh, various forms of mobility services, which are kind of, a lot of which are stemming from business models, the, the incumbent automotive industry is in significant risk of being disrupted. So that, that has been the, the backdrop of how I started my research in what became this book. So in essence, you took your, the uh, startup-driven innovation model that you have and you looked around, you uh, cast around and you noticed that it applies well to the automotive industry. Precisely. Um, and um, I, uh, I, I tried to make this uh, this type of lessons that both I've learned, but also the lessons that the automakers are learning 
and the lessons that they need to learn as they as they um, try to take advantage, but also defend against uh, take advantage of the disruption, but also defend defend against being disrupted. So again, if you were to, to look at the, the automotive industry, uh, the first thing that is very striking is that uh, there are uh, there's a small number of very large uh, companies that control a number of different labels. So GM, you know, we talk about Chevy, we talk about Buick, we talk about Opel in Europe. Uh, they recently sold it, obviously, to uh, to PSA. But again, there are this is there are a very small number of of, of companies that control this it's a very large industry, the, the trillion dollar industry. Um, the other thing that is interesting is that, I, and, and to me, it was uh, extremely important is that this this industry uh, has been built on companies that over the years they have become uh, designers and manufacturers of vehicles. So they're responsible for designing the vehicle, manufacturing it, assembling it in the first manufacturing industry, and then creating demand, whereas the sale of the vehicle is uh, done through the dealers, right? So so there is, where they see themselves responsible is design and manufacturing, and they're paying relatively little attention to what happens post-sale. Right. Um, so that means that there is a um, there is a relatively little understanding of consumer behavior. So that was another another lesson. The, the third observation is that the reason that there are so few of these companies, these incumbents, is because starting one is very capital intensive. And if you look at how much money, for example, a company like Tesla. This, this has, has been able to raise, you get a sense of um, how, what kind of capital is necessary. And, and the, the next point is that even though the, there is a lot of capital that's being raised, in the end, this is a relatively low margin business. And where you, you try to make it up is in the, the volume. And that's why if you look at this, all these corporations, they have extremely um, sophisticated supply chains, extremely sophisticated manufacturing lines, highly optimized uh, because they, they, are, they are working on maintaining these, these margins. And as we, as we move now to next generation mobility, particularly where the, the services, I'm mean, talking about mobility services, those those margins can be um, uh, even further depressed uh, because there will be a need for even fewer cars. Now that's uh, but but that's the those are the general characteristics of the of the automotive industry. You know, from a, from an R and D perspective, uh, they're spending a lot of money on R and D, uh, getting the billions of dollars. Uh, but a lot of that R and D is focused on keeping up with regulations. So uh, whether it is emissions, whether it is safety standards, it is not uh, being, it is not focusing on, on buying new things in the way that we think of over the horizon innovation. So what are some of the drivers of disruption? Yeah, so, so um, 
I actually see uh, two, two two types of uh, two types of drivers. On, on one hand, there are a number of societal and urban challenges, and um, for me, um, these are uh, some of them are, are very connected. So the, the first challenge is the urbanization and the creation of mega cities. Like um, uh, we have now. Even as of uh, the middle of this decade, uh, a larger percent of the population lives in urban uh, centers. And um, over the next 30, 40 years, we'll have another two, two and a half billion dollars, billion people that are moving to these um, urban uh, areas. Um, the, in these mega cities, we have a tremendous, uh, uh, traffic congestion problem. Uh, as, I, as I've said in the book, we spend, uh, too much time commuting to work or home. And when we arrive at our destination, we, we are not productive because of the commuting experience. Uh, pollution and, and climate change are, are also impacting the quality of our life, uh, particularly in cities. Uh, transportation contributes a, a good uh, percent of these of the greenhouse uh, gases. And um, we, we are now seeing uh, in the pollution in mega cities such as Beijing or, or Mexico City or, or Bangkok. Um, that, uh, that are impacting again the, the quality of life. And then we have the, the, the socioeconomic conditions for certain population segments. Uh, they're leading, uh, these segments to start adopting the sharing economy. And, and the uh, part of that sharing economy is directed to transportation and is, it has been well documented. Uh, millennials are leading the way in this in this adoption. So we see on the one hand we have these um, uh, changes, these these challenges, and and on the other hand we have obviously the the, the technological disruptions uh, in the form of uh, autonomous uh, connected and, and electrified uh, vehicles. I guess. Uh... Just to emphasize that particular aspect of it, it seems like as far as autonomous vehicles, the conditions are there for uh, autonomous vehicles to progress quickly. One, I think there's, you know, the acceptance on the part of the consumers is increasing, right? So there's high customer acceptance for self-driving cars. The governments seem to be willing to... To play a role in terms of setting legal frameworks, right? So here I'm, I'm referring mostly to the U.S. and China. The technology is progressing, and uh, there's a there's a new set of companies. So there's new ent- there's new competitors that are focused on accelerating uh, the introduction of self-driving cars. Yeah, um, and, and I would say that. Um, Technology, as it happens in many instances, technology is way ahead of um, the other factors such as regulation or, or infrastructure. Um, this morning, I started my day talking with a very large uh, transportation company, and um, their question to me is, who pays for that, for the creation of the appropriate infrastructure, you know, uh, transportation infrastructure? Uh, my answer to that was in, in some cases we will see 
countries, you know, governments taking the initiative. I think we're seeing that in places like Singapore, we're seeing it in, in China. So what new infrastructure do cell autonomous vehicles require? Well, uh, it's, you know, this is where the, the data comes in. Uh, the, the vehicle needs to, to know very much where uh, what's happening around it. So that means it needs to receive signals from its um, uh, its transport, its uh, you know the, the roads, the, the, uh, the bridges. The, so this is uh, this is kind of the notion of V two X communication, right? So vehicle to that, ve- vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure. That's right, and infrastructure to vehicle. That, that's that's absolutely right. Um, so uh, then I we have to understand that we're talking about autonomous vehicles, but uh, it will take a very long time uh, for this to have the preponderance of vehicles. Being autonomous. I mean, we, if you think that uh, the life the life cycle of a vehicle once it leaves the lot, maybe you're talking to someone whose cars are very old. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So it's unlikely that we will be able to replace uh, you know all of our cars. So we we need to uh, we need infrastructure that will enable us to safely operate in a hybrid world between uh, vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and uh, manually operated vehicles. So, so think- let, me, let me take a contrarian perspective, which is, uh, I think what you're describing is great. You know, we'll have smart infrastructure. Uh, we'll have vehicles that have uh, access to high-resolution positioning, high-definition maps. We'll have a data cloud even right, so access to big data, compute, yeah. and stuff like that. But then, evangelists, some people will say, well, if we wait for all of that, why can't we just get started now? Because obviously, people are driving right now without access to any of the things you described. Yes, and, and I think we will uh, we will do that. Uh, and I think over the, the next uh, five to ten years, we will see larger and larger scale uh, tests. Uh, uh, and, and I think in the process, uh, we will have setbacks. So, uh, for example, if you saw what happened on, I think it was on Friday, uh, where the, uh, an, an Uber autonomous vehicle collided, uh, in, uh, in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, with a, a manually driven vehicle because the, the conventional vehicle, uh, ran over some, uh, um, some, I think it was a stop sign or something like that. And, um, so we, we will, you know, that, that, thank God there were no fatalities or, or injuries. There was, but there was uh, damage to the, uh, autonomous, uh, vehicle that was deboned, as they say. Um, so I think we will, we will see more of that. Uh, and, but I, I think the, the experiments that today involve just a few tens of cars, uh, will continue expanding over the next uh, few years. And I think, frankly, the results of those experiments uh, will, will form the basis of both the investments that, that we will need to make, will give us, in other words, understanding and appreciation of the investments that we need to make and how to prioritize them, as well as the regulations that we will need to institute in order to have the uh, this type of hybrid uh, environment operate safely. By the way, uh, while uh, 
while I did say earlier that some of the things that you described as a technology that is required to have infrastructure for autonomous driving is not present, humans are driving without them. On the other hand, humans do communicate with each other, right? So like, for example, when you and I are driving, I may signal with my hand or I may nod. And uh, so there's some vehicle-to-vehicle communication happening. Some people say, well, maybe we don't need the high-precision map, high-resolution maps and all of that. It's clear that we'll need some sort of AI, right? So some onboard perception, planning, and reasoning system. Yes. Uh, uh, and, but also, at the end of the day, I think the, the, the things that you outlined point to a better scenario, uh, better scenario. I mean, just because humans drive without access to the things that uh, you listed doesn't mean that in the future we'll have safer roads because we'll have access to a lot more things like the big data analytics that you alluded to. Right. I, I think, uh, again, for me, the what I call the... The, the title of the book, I think, needs to be parsed in like two, two pieces. First, there is the big data opportunity. There is whether we're driving conventional cars uh, with an increased number of services around those cars, or we uh, increasingly drive uh, cars with uh, autonomous capabilities, uh, big data will play a big role. Uh, and I think the um, the incumbents uh, are uh, starting to wake up to that reality. So what data are we talking about here, Evangelist? Well, um, if you look at uh, if you look at a company like Tesla uh, as an example, they they collect uh, everything from every time that you turn the, the turn signal on to um, destinations, to the condition of the car based on the various sensors, to how many passengers there may be in the car. So there are a variety of, of data that can be captured from within the vehicle based on the condition of the cabin as well as the condition of the engine and the condition of the other systems in, in, the, in the vehicle. So you're describing a company that's very different from the incumbents you described earlier, who you said didn't know that much about their product post-sale. That's right. So, and, and I think in the book, I, I talk about uh, four, what I call disrupt, what I consider disruptors in this industry, and I consider Tesla to be one of them. Um, and, and the reason is because uh, this is a data-driven company. And in fact, I would even venture to say that Tesla is probably today utilizing only a fraction of the data that they collect. Uh, they sound more like you know how when Boeing sells an airplane to Singapore Airlines, don't they keep? They have some kind of maintenance contract, but maybe even more, right? So well, um, so uh, I think the the automotive industry, uh, because of how it is evolving through the use of mobility services, um, I claim that and autonomous uh, vehicles. I think they will need to learn a lot more from the airline industry. Uh, and not only how, uh, you know, you talked about Boeing, but it's not only uh, the, the, uh, plane, the, the airplane manufacturer that collects data. If you look at GE, for example. Right, right, right. That, uh, provides the engines, right? They collect a lot of, a lot of data about from each engine. 
that is on a, on a plane, a jet engine. So I think this is why I believe that the, the, the next generation mobility will be a multi-cloud environment where you may have the, the OEM, in other words, the automaker having a cloud and collecting data. You may have parts suppliers, uh, uh, such as uh, Delphi, for example, uh, collecting uh, uh, their own data about a particular component or components that they have in the, in the car, in a vehicle. And then you may have other third-party uh, services providers. Yeah, so, so for, example, example, for example, if, uh, I'm, uh, if I'm not Tesla and I'm getting my autonomous driving technology from, say, Google, maybe Google has some data too, right? Precisely, precisely. Uh, it could be Google, it can be weather.com, it can be um, you know, Inrix, if you're getting graphic data from them as opposed to, say, Waze. Or, but you know, but, uh, so, but uh, does, at the end of the day, does the, does the insurance, car insurance company get access to all my data? <laughs> well, uh, car insurance, actually, uh, insurance companies have been thinking uh, uh, a lot about what it means to both have partial autonomy in, in vehicles or increasing uh, levels of driving automation and having uh, full autonomy, as well as what it means to be, uh, to be using mobility services in order to address your mobility needs. So um, we're, we're seeing several startups uh, that are now involved with uh, large insurance companies conducting uh, uh, experiments around usage-based insurance, as they call it, UBI, um, and uh, to, to determine everything from driver, um, uh, you know, how, how safe the driver is, to how they're driving and whether uh, how much they're driving, so that they can uh, dynamically adjust potentially the uh, the insurance the insurance rates. Because again, in the process, they're learning to, to dynamically determine risk uh, as opposed to determining risk only when an accident happens, right? Which is the more the, the current approach. So. Um, so yeah, I think I think the insurance companies are evolving. Also, uh, uh, automobile uh, car finance companies are evolving, right? Because if you think of the of a future where you're starting to to have a hybrid model that combines car ownership with car access, as I as I claim in, in, in the book, as I postulate in the book, uh, then the 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 car financing companies. All of a sudden, uh, we need to finance fewer cars, but they need to finance them differently. I and mean, cars that operate, let's say, in uh, you know 18 hours a day have a very different uh, life cycle uh, uh, as uh, than cars that oper- that operate an hour a day. Uh, so again, all, all of these so the implications and the potential disruption of all this is not only uh, focusing on the uh, automotive industry, but on the entire value chain that starts from the design of the automobile and ends with the retirement of the automobile. Um, so it includes you know, sale, financing, insuring, repairing, parking, maintaining. So, so that entire value chain is being uh, uh, rethought uh, because of uh, these implications of both uh, of the combination of driverless vehicles. Mobility services. Yeah, I uh, actually uh, read somewhere that uh, 
if right now, if you drive less than 6,000 kilometers a year, you're better off just using Uber. But once uh, you have self-driving cars, maybe that number goes up to 20,000 kilometers per year. Yeah, I mean the the way I've been uh, I've been looking at this um, is uh, by the way your data is correct and there are a, a couple of um, of the large management consulting firms that have conducted uh, research in that area primarily to determine um, uh, whether uh, a car sharing coin uh, car sharing makes sense. By the way, just for me personally. Uh, the reason I have old cars is I can't bring myself to buy a car because I I don't drive anymore. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, so so the um, uh, but but again the, the the data that I've been following is uh, t- today uh, for the ride hailing companies uh, it costs roughly about a dollar sixty per mile uh, to operate a vehicle. Uh, with autonomous, uh, electrified vehicles, that number can go down to 35 cents per mile. And some other work that has been done shows that at a dollar a mile, uh, more consumers, more and more consumers will consider giving up their vehicles and, um, uh, using just this shared, shared mobility. So, this is, uh, I think, one of the greatest incentives for companies like Uber and Lyft and Didi, um, that uh, maybe even Tesla, that are uh, developing uh, their autonomous vehicles to apply them to these shared mobility sort of fleet operations. And that's why, as I say in, in the book, the... Uh, I think the, the, the first broad, the, the, rather, the, the big broad users of autonomous vehicles will be fleets, it will not be individuals. Right. And so, right, in, right. The, in the same way that in the airline industry, uh, the, the, the biggest uh, users of airplanes are large corporations. Now, we have private uh, airplanes uh, uh, that are used. Either they are owned by individuals or uh, either outright or through fractional ownership. So I think we could see this type of models uh, coming to the fractional ownership coming to vehicles. Um, but but I think in the over the next 30, 50 years, you know, again, you have to take a very long horizon, in my opinion, uh, when you, you can you will be able to think of you'll be able to think of an, of an environment where uh, the, uh, the majority of the automobiles uh, are owned by by fleets, and, and they take care of daily daily uh, transportation needs. And then there might be uh, uh, ownership either uh, for for specialized needs, or or maybe because you live in an area where you need to to have a car, you don't have access to um, uh, transportation networks. Yeah, actually, uh, as I understand it, right, so there's the different different levels of auton- autonomous vehicles, level one to five. And then also there's these different groups that you described, right? So there's uh, robot taxis like uh, Uber, there's the trucks, and then there's the privately owned vehicles. So the level of adoption really depends on both. So what level are we talking about and what kind of vehicle? And uh, 
as you as you alluded to, it seems like uh, the the first adopters will be the fleets, which would be the robotaxis and the trucks, because one, they're professionally maintained, and two, the drivers have some kind of inst- they go through some instruction and uh, you know instruction and training, so maybe they're better off. Uh, uh, they're they're be- they're better aware of the limitations of the technology when they first use it, right? Right, and, and the other point that I'm also making is that I think that for fleets, you know, whether it is for the transportation of humans or whether it is for logistics, uh, transportation of packages and other goods, um, the the economics of uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, start making uh, much more sense than the, than private ownership. Uh, I think very much like you see, for example, with, uh, many higher end cars, including, including Teslas and Mercedes and, and, and other brands, we do have, uh, increasing levels of autonomy. So you get a, you know, many cars now can park themselves. I mean, that's a, that's a level of autonomy. They even mid-range vehicles today, mid-price vehicles, they they have the capability to stay in lane and warn the driver. So for uh, the for the lay person who doesn't follow this closely, is it level four and five where we're really talking about the science fiction self-driving? In levels four and five, and levels four and five is when you do not have the need. Uh, for the oper- for a human operator to, to deal with the situations so of the vehicle is able to, to take care of, of itself. And the, the difference between four and five really is, uh, in the, in level four, you still have a steering wheel and you have the capability for of the operate, of an operator to take over the, the operation of the vehicle or to, to drive themselves if they do not want to engage uh, the autonomous capabilities of the vehicle. In level five, the best example would be the, the Google bubble car, uh, where you do not even have a steering wheel, right? You, you just have a, uh, an emergency stop button, but the, the car is uh, sophisticated enough where it can deal with every situation uh, safely. Uh, without, in other words, endangering the, the passengers. So to put you on the spot, so uh one one uh, uh forecast i saw i uh, i'd like to know if you agree with this kind of uh, rough assessment they say that you know right around 2030 maybe we'll see, we'll start seeing on the order of 15% of all new vehicles sold globally will be either level 4 or 5 and i interpret that as mostly because of the fleets I would, again, assuming uh, that uh, some of the other issues that we talked about, regulation and, and uh, infrastructure investments are taken care of, I think that's, uh, that's about right in terms of time horizon. Uh, I, I think, you know, what I'm more concerned about, to be honest with you, in terms of estimates is when, when people expect that within the next, uh, you know, three, four years, we will be able to drive autonomously with, with no problem, uh, around wherever we want to go. And I, I'm, I'm more concerned about that because I think that even if the, even if cars have this type of capability, it will not be, 
the best idea in terms of safety to, to use them. Uh, to use them, so the technology will be there uh, before 2030. It's just the uh, the, the safe operation that will be the, the issue. And uh, so, what what is level three? Well, level three is the, the capability. for you know the the vehicle can take. Uh, care of most major functions of, of the vehicle, but uh, you, know, you also have the uh, you, you, you need the so the key the key word order. being most not right. all not all right right so and, then uh, when when are we going to see a car manufacturer introduce that? Uh, I think level three you you already have um, uh, high, high, the, the higher end models of. Um, uh, few foreign cars already have that and also uh, what Tesla is doing today I consider it level 3 with the autopilot I see I see I mean especially the, the this new generation of uh, of autopilot has has many of has this uh, this uh, very characteristics so couple of questions on the data and AI aspect first on the AI aspect uh, I think that uh, at some, I mean, I think you would have to not only rely on AI, right? So you would have to supplement it with some rule-based control system. Well, um, actually, the, uh, the the argument that, that I'm making, this actually goes because of my uh, education on AI and, and my work on AI since the mid-80s, is that uh, while machine learning is important, uh, I think uh, everybody needs to appreciate that it's not only about machine learning. So in order to to bring uh, to to, real, to realization uh, an autonomous vehicle, we need more than machine learning. And of course, within machine learning, we have uh, we have neural network learning and particularly deep learning, and these are very important areas. Um, but that, 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 that's just the perception layer. My understanding, Evangelist, is that actually right now the state of the art uh, technology still rely a lot on rule-based systems. Well, what I was going to say is that uh, people need to realize that a, an autonomous vehicle uh, uh, requires the ability to, to plan, requires the ability to reason, uh, to represent knowledge, to search. All of these are components of AI. So my, uh, what I'm hoping to impart on the reader is that it's not only about machine learning and particularly not about deep learning because the, the popular press is, um, I think, is leading everybody to believe that it's only about deep learning. And actually, the se- the sensors are important, like lidar, right? Yeah, so so the the, the sensors are, are important because uh, that's how you get the data, right? That's how you you understand the the environment around you, as well as what's happening. And I think right now there's a race to to develop the sensors as cheaply as possible with the same amount of precision, right? There is because again, if you if you think uh, uh, how how much uh, how much you would be willing to pay if you were to think about whether it is on a fleet or on an individual vehicle, I think uh, the autonomous features uh, cannot be more than let's say seven to ten thousand dollars per vehicle, 
so uh, because, because otherwise it will not. Otherwise, we'll be driving in golf carts. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, that's, that's how we're putting it. What about the, the data cloud aspect of it? And in many ways, actually, even the uh, so there there are two pieces, right? So the uh, autonomous driving technology, and then the data cloud, the uh, where the big data and the data analytics gets crunched. Uh, do you think that uh, if you were to predict the future, would we end up having a few? We would have a few major players, right? So just like we have Android and iOS. And uh, in, in the cloud side, we have a few big cloud providers. Is that what's going to happen in this? Uh... I think um, so. I think we will have um, uh, multiple cloud providers. In fact, I'm betting on that through my investments in this space. I think that uh, those cloud providers will be at the application layer. So those cloud providers may be utilizing infrastructures from the likes of Microsoft or Amazon or other generic clouds. But my all I'm trying to say is that there are going to be several clouds that make up this new environment. As I said before, the OEMs, the automakers, in other words, will yeah, have yeah, cloud. Actually, uh, actually, that's one thing I want to find, ask you is, uh, since I don't follow the space closely, is to what extent are the uh, car manufacturers going to be disrupted and re- completely reliant on these new players or are they also not are they also developing their own technologies in the space i think the the manufacturers are developing uh, are starting to develop technologies in this area uh, i think they have a lot to learn uh, they're in a steep uh, learning curve in other words they all, and- they all seem to have r&d labs out here in silicon valley <laughs> They, they, they do, and, and I think there's work that's being done here, and there's also um, work that's being done uh, in the other uh, research centers that they have. Uh, I know uh, a few of them have now opened operations in Israel, uh, and China. And obviously, they can acquire some of these startups that uh, we hear about, right? So. And, and they have been, right? Uh, I think you, you look at acquisitions such as... Uh, GM acquired Cruise, that's right. Um, you, you have uh, even smaller acquisitions uh, of uh, companies like Automatica uh, by uh, Delphi. Uh, and then you have obviously uh, you know, much larger uh, acquisitions like what recently happened between Intel and Mobileye. So what distinguishes, do you think right now, uh, the ones that are further ahead from the ones that are just uh, getting started in terms of... Uh, in terms of technology? So um, I think the, the ones that are further ahead are the ones that first have realized that it is not going to be anymore about just a vehicle. In other words, uh, transportation in the future will be a combination of car ownership and car access. So they need to not only be in the car creation uh, side of transportation, but they also need to be in the uh, service provision side, uh, mobility services. Um, then within within those, I think you have certain automakers that have started uh, developing uh, combinations of internal programs and are coupling them with external innovation programs. Many of these programs, by the way, 
are uh, startup driven, and this is again, this is where my uh, my interest, my my work interest came in, both from an investment perspective, but also from a uh, from researching this uh, the, the work that I'm that I'm doing around innovation. So I think those companies that are able to deal with both combination of internal and external innovation, uh, both uh, startup and large company innovation, and companies that are able to understand that they need to combine um, cars, car manufacturing, car design, uh, for particularly around this case, vehicles, and mobility services are the ones that are starting to, to get uh, to get ahead. But as I said before, uh, the the learning curve is quite steep. Uh, culture is is a is a big uh, is a big issue here. In other words, their their internal culture needs to change. They need to become faster movers, and they need to realize that the investments that they need to make uh, not only will be significant, but they need to be made over a long period of time. So timelines are important here. This is not a a six-month or one-year uh, play. And also, it's a, as you describe it, it's a very, very different business. Instead of just selling the car and you're done, very different. Right, right. That, that's why culture is important because th- these are companies that have that can come through like a manufacturing uh, a culture that is built on scale. And now they have to become much more agile Services are important. It's not only about manufacturing. Smaller batches are important, which means different business models, uh, life cycles that are much more compressed. I mean, so all of these things that that impact uh, their culture. Let me let me ask you this. I saw a, do- a documentary about a car designer, and uh, so then I I started realizing uh, how much car companies place on uh, these car designers and the timeline from just you know. Uh, mocking up something to actually uh, rolling it out in production. But, you know, nowadays, of course, you just call an Uber and you don't really care about the design of the car that shows up as long as it shows up and it's on time, it's safe. And so how, to what extent uh, will, will some of these priorities change within? Well, um, again, um, in, in developed economies, uh, particularly after World War II, uh, starting with the U.S. Uh, with U.S. and then spreading to other developed economies, car ownership uh, became synonymous with our self-worth. Right. Um, and and for that reason, uh, design was extremely important. Think of the kind of the heyday of American right. Uh, right. automobile around the world was revered, right? And then. We shifted to Japanese, and then we shifted to German, and, and so so there are all of these uh, all of these changes that happened over the year. But what remained constant was the fact that the automobile defined us, and, and because it defined us, design was extremely important. Whether you were buying a, a micro car or whether you were buying a, a luxury or a high end sports car, I, I think that design will not go away. Um, in the same way that it does not go away for bicycles or for motorcycles or whatever, but but I, I think that uh, but now we have would... we have the sharing economy, right? So like I right. said, when I called the car, I just care that it comes on time. <laughs> right, um, but but that's what I'm saying. I, I think that the design would be would be important for. 
for those who want to own a car and, and maybe for the few people where, uh, for the fewer people where, uh, still, uh, uh the, the, the car itself defines them. I do not know how large of a group that is. I think it will be generational. Uh, and, and I think, you know, automakers are very, are studying this very closely in order to, to determine, uh, where, where that, where that future, uh, leads. But, but I think again, design will remain, uh, important, but it will not be important for uh, big parts of the, of the bank, of the population as it is today. So this is a, this is an industry kind of like finance, you know, where, uh, You've got Silicon Valley upstarts wanting to disrupt, but then they sometimes forget uh, the regulatory framework, right? So, uh, so th- I'm assuming that uh, regulation is something uh, important, uh, given that you know this is something that affect- affects people's lives. So, where are we in terms of the regulators? Well. Um- Right, Ben, I, I was going to, to make a slightly different point, then we'll get to regulation in a minute. But one of the points that I wanted to, to uh, make sure that folks uh, understand, particularly startups, is that there is a very uh, easy way for, for startups to say, well, I'm going to disrupt an entire industry, I'm going to reiterate it and, and think in very optimistic ways. Um, while I still believe that uh, the the automotive industry uh, is ripe for disruption, and we're starting to see some of that disruption uh, uh, taking place, um, I think startups need to understand uh, how uh, you know, where they fit in in this evolving ecosystem and an evolving value chain. Um, I think. Um, as I, as I say in my book, uh, they need to understand both what they can contribute uh, as well as to, to the incumbents, as well as what they can take from the incumbents. So there is this need for this value exchange that I define um, uh, in the book. Uh, and it would particular to be data, since that's what the book is about, I think uh, it does provide big opportunities for both startups and large uh, incumbents but for, for the startups, just being data-centric, like most startups uh, are today, particularly in this space, is not sufficient. They, they really need to understand where they fit and what value they provide. Now, with regards to regulation, I think um, you're seeing a, a variety uh, of, uh, of approaches. You, you see, as I said before, in, in places, uh, in several countries, uh, uh, regulation and, and uh, thinking about it's, it's, it's also tricky, right? Because uh, in the at, at least in the U.S., the car is regulated by the federal government, but the driver is regulated by the state. Yes, and um, what we're seeing by now, by the way, well, what happens? What happens with the self-driving car? Who's going to regulate that, right? So. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I think in the United States, in particular, um, we are seeing the states taking much more of an initiative now compared to, to the federal um, to the federal government. Um, I, I think the federal government is interested in understanding um, what are the opportunities and the possibilities. But is that sufficient? So, in other words, if the state of California says, "Yeah, it's fine for self-driving cars to." drive in the highways of California, but isn't that the 
National Highway Safety Transportation Administration's purview. Right, and, and that's what I'm saying. I, I think that as we take these this steps, we will be learning in the, on the way, and that's why I think that it will take much longer than than some of the technology pundits at least think uh, it will take. Because I think the technology will be uh, available, but but thorny issues like the ones that you just raised uh, will need to be will need to be addressed before uh, we can safely uh, operate uh, these uh, these vehicles. That that's my uh, uh, that's the point that I've been that I've been making to people because it's not only about technology. So. Let me close this interview by having you opine on the mother of all disruptions in in terms of cars. And that's something that's uh, being talked about a little bit here in Silicon Valley, which is flying cars. (laughs) So what do you think about that? What do you think Uh, about flying cars? Well, uh, I think it's all a matter of uh, perspective, I guess. Um, I I think that as we... um, to me, it's the ultimate solution, right? So, because there's no more traffic up there. <laughs> well, uh, n- not necessarily, because uh, like, like it happens in every of these situations. You need to, I mean, think, think of when Uber started in uh, in New York. Everybody, New Yorkers, and I, I do quite a bit of work with the city of New York. New Yorkers thought that this would be great; they would not have to deal with taxes anymore and, and all that. And then all of a sudden. Uh, and they will deal with the congestion problems that particularly in Manhattan. And then all of a sudden, there are too many Uber uh, cars in Manhattan. So now the congestion has become even worse, right? That's what I'm saying. I, I don't think that uh, flying cars will be just by themselves are going to be the solution to uh, many of these issues. Oh, well, what, what's, what's your take on it? Is, is it, uh, what's the timeline? Um, I think again, uh, technology-wise, it may it may take uh, you know I don't know five seven years. I, mean, I don't know. I, this is not uh, this is not an area that I have been uh, uh, spending too much time uh, on. I mean, in terms of flying cars, uh, I think uh, implementation uh, it, it, could, it could take a lot longer unless you yeah. Like uh, there's a lot of uh, details, right? Like how high are we talking about? <laughs> Right, and that's what I'm saying. If you were to think about it as a just a new form of a helicopter, let's say, uh, which can only go in designated corridors, it can only land in designated areas, that may make uh, a quicker implementation. If, if you if you think about it as being like uh, you know, almost like a car, but even more random because you will not have the constraints of physical roads, then I think we'll, we'll, uh, it's going to take a long time. Wow. All right. So this has been great. And uh, we look forward to uh, reading the book more in detail. I'm going to make sure I put a link to the book in the post accompanying this episode. Thank you very much, uh, Ben. Always a pleasure. You can follow Evangelos Simudis on Twitter at eSimudis. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.